Okay. I, um, I'm going to start with any questions, I think. Um, I've got one or two just noticey things, um, but then I'd have to take any questions from the previous, previous section. I'm sorry, about 15 people tried to catch me in a break and say, could I just... And after about five or six, I just had to say, I'm sorry, I just need to think about the next bit. Um, so if, I, if you get shrugged off, I'm, please don't think it's rude. I'm just trying to keep my own sanity while trying to think about what we're doing next. Um, and we'll have a bit more time later, at the, you know, towards the end of the day or maybe even over lunch. Um, okay, can I just pick up there? Any questions that are hanging over from the end of the last session? Um, Alan, who apparently put his hand up twice and got sniffed at both times. I'm very sorry. Is it possible for churches to lose a lampstand? I think so, yes. I, I think... I mean, obviously, in some ways, the metaphor is a bit strange because the lampstand is a church, and yet he then says, I will remove the lampstand from the church. Um, And this is where I think the idea that the lampstand in Revelation symbolizes the church, but also symbolizes the the, the flaming lamp is really the person of the spirit, isn't it? As in back in Zechariah, the lampstand represents the the seven lamps or the seven spirits. So I think if you wanted to sort of put it in concrete terms, I think you're saying, are there churches which have... So jettisoned, you know, anything remotely professing a sort of resembling a Christ-professing, witnessing church, that God then says, my spirit's backing out of here, and you guys are just going to, you know, you're going to get stuck there without me. Then yes, I do think that happens. I don't want to name and shame. Uh, I don't think that would be my place at all. Um, But yes, I think that can happen, and I think that's the warning. Um, I, I think the idea that God could withdraw from a church and they could carry on worshiping God without noticing that he had is terrifying and yeah I think it's a thing um, and some of us some of us may have come from that church I don't know but um, yeah I, I think it is Thanks. yeah in Revelation 1-7 when God talks about um, seeing Jesus on mm. the clouds as it were yeah. when historically lots of people have read it as referring to the second coming yeah can you yes so is the coming on the clouds of the son of man a reference to some combination of the vindication of Jesus in and through the resurrection, ascension, and possibly even destruction of Jerusalem? Or is it a reference to the return of Jesus to the earth? Um, yeah, clearly, there are, there are people on both sides, right? Lots, lots and lots of them. Historic, most, most people in our churches would probably not even ask the question. They'd assume that's talking about the return of Jesus to the earth. That's what the coming of the Son of Man would mean to most of us, probably. Um, I personally think that it does refer to the vindication of the Son of Man in and through the events of the resurrection, the ascension, and possibly up to AD 70, actually. But I think that primarily is the vindication of Jesus. And I think the reason I think that is because in just coming, it's the comings and goings, right? It's like, is the Son of Man, where is he coming from and to? And in Daniel 7, he is not coming from heaven to earth. He's actually almost coming into heaven's throne room from somewhere else to receive the kingdom. And I think that is critical. So that the coming, this coming of the Son of Man in the language of Daniel is about the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days and receiving the kingdom as the church or the people of, in it that day. Of course, Israel, faithful Israel, persevere and are strengthened in the face of the beast. And the, but don't worry because the Son of Man receives the kingdom. So I think when Jesus uses it and says, then you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, that's talking about him coming to the Ancient of Days, not coming from the throne of God to the earth in, at the end of history. So I and that affect that's you can't I can't possibly persuade people of that that quickly that this is a, this affects the way you read Matthew twenty four Mark thirteen Luke twenty one one Thessalonians five the whole of Revelation it's a it's a right tangle once you get into it but that's 
if you want names on the map, that's the sort of, yes, Ian Paul and Tom Wright and Peter Lightheart view of the coming of the Son of Man rather than the more traditional future coming of Jesus to the earth view. Um, it was just so funny. I, I've just heard Tom Wright say that after teaching on this about the fact that Ercomenos, as in coming and going, but basically having to figure out whether, whether Jesus is coming or going, he's, he was teaching on this and his student put up their hand and just said, oh, I honestly don't know whether I'm coming or going, which I just thought was a really good response. And that's often what happens. People go, I've never, never even thought about this, but that's how I read it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's interesting though. In in so even in that song, I just realised that the most recent song I can think of, we sing that to include the line "He's coming on the clouds," the line and the lamb is fascinating because I don't know what the reader believes, what the writer of that song believes about this issue, because it's biblical symbolism and it doesn't. Songs don't work like that. But actually, if you think about what it's saying, he's coming on the clouds and kings and kingdoms will bow down and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? That sounds to me like it's referring to the age of the church. It doesn't sound to me like it's referring to something that will only happen at the end of history. So I almost wonder, are, you, are they adopting a you know, Tom Wright, Dick France, Ian Paul view of the Perusia? I don't know. Um, you can ask them if you know them. Johnny. Um, there's uh, obviously a lot of stuff about churches that tolerate sexual immorality. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so how do you relate to, uh, in the light of the comments that are made in several of the letters that Jesus is speaking to the churches about tolerating sexual immorality, how does that relate to affirming, gay affirming churches or gay marriage, you know, whatever, affirming churches and the way that we might relate to them? To be honest, the pastoral implications of that in terms of ecumenical work in the community and so on, I just, I don't think we've got the space to explore in this sort of setting. But I think the, the broader point is, I think that those are some of the most critical texts in the New Testament when it comes to thinking about how you relate to... Is there such a thing as a church that tolerates sexual immorality in the world today? And what does Jesus say about it? Revelation 2 to 3 is one of the first texts you need to go to, I think. Um, I, I just think it's the idea that, there, that's, that the problem, the biggest problem Jesus has with a whole bunch of churches is that they have people in them who are teaching you to tolerate sexual immorality and you need not to tolerate them and to hold fast to the truth. I think that's why I'm interested by which church you felt your which Revelation church you felt like your church is most like, or the church in your city. That may have been behind Tony's question, I don't know. Because I think when you, when you look at what, is the issue, what are the issues in our city or our community or the risks of our church amongst whole swathes of the church, yeah, saying I'm, we are going to tolerate and champion sexual immorality, which obviously in our, in our day it's a very specific variety of sexual immorality, but I think that's the, Jesus not, he doesn't just drop it in, he directly targets it three different, I think three different letters. And so when people say, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a, I often say this about the red letters. You know, I'm a red letter Jesus guy. Jesus doesn't say anything about it. I think, I think you need to read all of the red letters. I think you need to, you know what I mean? You need to read through the red letters in Revelation 2 and 3. And if you do, you'll find some of the fiercest words anywhere in the Bible about sexual immorality. And I think that tolerating them and encouraging churches to tolerate them is one of those things Jesus says, this, you must never do this. And in fact, my biggest problem with the church is that you are tolerating it and acting as if that's okay. So I think it's, yeah. Strong stuff, and uh, I think it's critical. Words. How that works itself out, I mean, I think that's just a, yeah, that, that's going to need, this calls for wisdom. Um, but, but I think on the, on the text, I think we can, we can go there. We could talk about it later if you want, but practically. I'll just take one more, if that's all right. Charles, I, I think Charles got up first, and, but we will, sorry? Is, did you say it's a silly question? The pressure is on now, isn't it?
interested in what would stop you from applying this to individuals, given I think yesterday you made a comment about yes. a lady saying, yes. oh, I was taught I was a lady yeah, yeah. Yeah. What would stop you from applying it to individuals? So we're talking about the churches, as, the letters as applying to the churches. What, if anything, would stop you applying it to individuals, like the lady I mentioned yesterday who'd been taught she was the Laodicean church? Um, in a sense, of course, the principles at work are are applicable to individuals as well. There are, you know, I think it is, to take the question we've just had, for an individual to tolerate sexual immorality, but to say, oh, but my church doesn't, so I'm fine, is obviously ridiculous. Like, it clearly does apply to individuals in a sense. The point I was making, though, about the lady yesterday is that I think she had been, what she was operating with was a, a framework for revelation that you could basically apply that, well, two things. Pastorally, somebody had clearly said, we don't think you're very spiritually sharp and therefore we're going to put that label on you which I just think is terrible pastoral practice so I'm making that point but also to say that the way in which people have often read Revelation as a whole is just to sort of as a, a bag of available symbols to slap on people often with great pastoral malpractice involved and without really thinking no this is a real church in Turkey at the time and of course that kind of spirit might well be at work in your church too and if it is you need to repent I'm not saying Lukewarm Christians have nothing to worry about because they're not that church. I'm just saying that that's... It didn't sound to me like she had been taught well about how the letters should be interpreted and handled. And it also sounded to me a bit as if she had been under some sort of heavy pastoral overstatements at least. I don't know the church involved, but that's what it looked like to me. So I don't think that means, though, that the, the lessons are not applicable to individuals. They clearly are, but Jesus is clearly speaking to churches, and that's the primary place we should then go to for our application. Um, Okay, sorry, I know there are still other... It's good there are other questions. We will try and pick them up as we go. Um, But, yeah, I think Revelation is bound to be the book that raises some questions. Um, Let me read Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit... And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashings of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is a, you know, rightly famous stunning glorious chapter that you can't get your head around at all and in some ways it feels a bit irreverent to give a little bit of running commentary on it because you think no this just needs to be read prayed about sung and 
perhaps not even just sort of explained as if it was any other piece of scripture, but just a few things that may help us see some things in it, I guess, that we may either may not have seen or may need to hear again. It begins with an invitation that there is, there is a liturgical shape to this uh, to the heavenly liturgy in chapter 4. Obviously, I've made the point previously that there is a liturgical shape to the whole book, but Revelation 4 has within it, if you like, a, a liturgical form, and it sets up, if you like, the heavenly throne room liturgy, which runs, if you remember back to the, the slide of joy, that runs right the way through from here, chapter 4, verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit. So the vision of chapter 4, we begin at the second major vision in the book. So until now, we've given overview, and then we've given vision one, revelation of Jesus. We're now doing vision two for the rest of today, pretty much, which is going to be the revelation of the throne of God. And the, the central vision, chapters 4 to 16, has a liturgical shape. It begins with an invitation. Come up here. It's like a call to worship. Come up. I want to show you the throne room of God. And I'm not saying to overplay it, but I think this is effectively what a insofar as there is such a role as a worship leader, and most of our churches probably have a worship leader, this is what they do. They don't, they don't say, I'm going to... Their job is not to say, let's cause the presence of God to come. Right? God's, God does that. You're, you're in the presence of God. We're in the presence of God now. Praise God. Right? That's not the, the, what the, the job to do is effectively to say, come up, and as far as I'm able with the songs I've chosen and the exhortations and scriptures I use, I want to help you come up and see something of the throne room of God. Then you come and see the glory of God and as chapter five as well, of course, and the victory of the Lamb of God and the identity of Christ and the work of the Spirit. I want to help you see it. You can feel it to be true. And when you do, you will get caught up in the same songs that the angels and the elders and the living creatures are all singing all the time. And I think that's effectively, it's a call to worship and it begins with the call to worship. That's really what, what we do. And in some of our churches, that role will be played by the person leading the band, and in some it will be played by the pastor who kicks off the meeting, and in some by somebody else. But I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to invite the church to see. And then as it's Matt Redmond's common line, isn't it? That we have revelation leads to response. And I don't think he means the book of Revelation, although it does help. Um, but, you know, you get revelation. So really your job is to lead people to see God as far as you are able. And as people see God, they will respond. You don't need to push for that. You just get, you see and when you see, you'll sing, because that's what people who see the glory of God do. So there's an invitation. And then, of course, praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I can't remember who that line comes from, but the Beatles sang love, 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 and the angels sing holy, holy, holy. It's a good line. Um, doesn't for a moment mean, of course, that singing that God is love is not something we should do at all, or that God is any more holy than he is love. That's not either, but that there is... The holiness of God, I think the point the writer of that phrase is making is that the holiness of God can guard against a corruption and a sentimentality and let alone a sexual promiscuity at work in the phrase love, 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 which is all too easy in our culture. So they sing holy, holy, holy. They sing worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. They sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals in chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might. In other words, the Lamb of God has now been put as the recipient of direct worship and praise in probably the most explicit move of Christocentric worship in the entire New Testament. They sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They sing, the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be the shepherd and he'll lead them unto springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These people sing, they praise. Song is central to Christian worship in a way that it isn't to most Worship in the world, and actually even a lot of religious worship. 
doesn't involve singing to the same degree. And it's, it's interesting that Christian-influenced cultures involve a lot of singing and sporting fixtures, which I just find as a, a fascinating comment. As, um, and, and I'm not saying that means that America is not Christian-influenced, but I do find it interesting that football, Europeans have effectively out of a sense that singing is integral to worship for 1,500 years, results in singing in the course of sporting events. And of course, cultures where Christianity has reached will often sing corporately in settings like that with people they don't even know in a way that's quite unusual in many cultures. Where, and in America, they don't sing, and it, well, apparently, hardly sing at sporting fixtures at all unless it's the national anthem. I just think that's an interesting thing about civic religion in America. Anyway, just, you know, it's all free, even if slightly offensive. Um, Lament and, lament and prayer. So obviously they do, they sing praise and adoration, but they also lament and pray. And I began to weep loudly. That's part of the liturgy here. It's part of the story of heaven's worship, in a sense, is a lament that all of God's purposes of judgment and blessing have not yet been accomplished because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Oh, there's a lament of the martyrs. God, how long, oh Lord? How long? This is not something that you only sing if you're a psalmist having a bad day. This is something that the martyrs sing now. I was killed for my faith. I was burned. I was beheaded. I was whatever it was. I was put, impaled and set on fire to light the streets on the way into Rome. I was, had skins put on me and was torn apart by wild beasts. How long, O oh Lord, before you avenge me and bring your justice to the earth? It's a lament. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God. The sense of prayer that's not just lamenting, but that's asking God to come and act. And when that, if you like, the bowl is full, then God acts. There is silence. I mentioned this yesterday in a corporate worship. This, you know, I flippantly said in the, in the book I wrote recently about sort of church worship that sometimes the case in some churches is just simply silence may not be kept. Um, that the idea of just everybody going quiet for a while is unthinkable in that kind of setting. No doubt it can be overdone and churches that have almost too much silence or that sort of slightly awkward shuffling-y silence is not a, that's not a particularly good thing at all. But the idea that in the, in the liturgy of Revelation there is silence for half an hour. I've never been in a meeting where there was silence for half an hour, but I'm, I can imagine if I'd just seen the events of Revelation 6 and 7, I'd probably be quiet too. There is the preaching of the words. The scroll is unsealed, and then the trumpets anticipate its contents. So the plot of the central vision really is the lamb appears and is given a scroll. The scroll is opened, seven seals, one by one. And having opened the seal, the scroll sounds like it's about to be read, but then in preparation of the, after the seals are opened, come seven trumpets. And then at the end of that, the scroll is eaten, digested, and preached in chapters 12 to 14. And so that's really the plot of the central vision. Uh, so the scroll is unsealed, it's eaten, and then it's preached, and then, of course, bread and wine. The earth is harvested, grapes are gathered, wine is pressed, and then the bowls are poured out, or the chalices, or whatever we would call them. So the, the central vision is liturgical in its shape. It's, it's structured like a worship service, among other things. Again, I'm not therefore saying, oh, so we should have basically a couple of chapters worth of singing, and then a sermon that lasts seven chapters. That's not the, you know, don't overread it, but I just think it's worth seeing the elements that are at work here. And those, to this day, are the central elements of Christian worship. But the vision is centered on the throne... And in chapter 4, we have concentric circles. And what? Oh my goodness, what happened there? Looks like a dartboard on your. How has this happened? 
Okay, I'm sure we will find the beast. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, I will definitely not call her that any, ever again. Um, I don't know quite how that's happened because my version's got all of this on it, which, um, anyway. So yes, that's what's supposed to be on. The, sorry, again, we will send you around the full version um, if, if you would like it, I'm sure you would. Um, so, but there is a, basically concentric circles. And obviously I'm not saying they are standing in actual circles, it's a schematic. But at the centre of the vision is the throne. And the throne is... And interestingly, the central division, it doesn't quite say God, although, of course, the one seated on the throne is God. But in a way, it, it says at, at, at the center of the vision is one on the throne. That's how he's described. It doesn't actually say at the center of the vision was God, although I know that's not, we know who it is. But there is the one who sits on the throne is the way he's described here, the enthroned one. And that's, he is at the center, surrounded by torches and a rainbow. I love that, you know. Um, I think we call it Revelation song, don't we? But worthy is the Lamb. I think his portrayal of this scene is so powerful. It's just musically very, I think, very beautiful. It's kind of difficult to sing in places, but it's just got a fantastic build to it as you just begin to feel a sense of how glorious this scene actually is. But at the center, there is a throne surrounded by rainbows of living colors. Around the throne, there is then the lion, there's the four living creatures. The one that looks like a human, a lion, an eagle, and a bull. Come back to them in a minute. Around the living creatures, representing, if you like, the angelic creatures who angelic beings who represent the created order. Outside them, you have the twenty-four elders, Um, and then outside them, you have. By the way, there's also the sort of the glassy sea all around, and then outside them, there are myriads of angels numbering thousands of thousands, and then there is every creature everywhere who is, if you like, the outer layer yet beyond that. And so this is a sort of concentric circle thing where you pan out. And again, just the way the camera moves in this scene, I looked at the throne and that's all I could see. And then it backed out and then I saw this and then I saw this and this and this. It's interesting because it's a sort of start at the center and zoom out. Whereas the vision that in some ways it's most like in the Bible is the vision of Ezekiel 1, which does the opposite, which is sort of start at the out and then zoom in. If you think through Ezekiel 1, it's like, and then I saw these... I saw the wheels and the living creatures and then eventually I saw this giant crystal expanse that was over them all and then I panned up and then finally saw this, you know, it begins with a windstorm, a cloud, and then inside that there's fiery creatures and then there's wheels and then it goes to this, this massive crystal dome and then eventually, finally, <laughs> to the crystal dome! And then eventually at the very end there is this throne and on it one like a son of man. So the vision starts out and moves in, this one starts in and moves out. Um, Here's the thing that I just absolutely love about the vision of the throne and the way it relates to the previous vision, right? The Laodiceans at the end of chapter three are promised that if they conquer, they will sit down with the father on his throne and they're assured, and and by the way, and here here it is, here's the throne, right? So the end of of chapter three says, if you conquer, you'll sit with the father on his throne. Then I looked and I saw the throne. So there's a beautiful connection there. But more beautifully to me, is the fact that Jesus assures the church that despite their lukewarmness, Jesus is knocking at the door, waiting for them to open it. And chapter 4 begins and says, and then I looked and I saw an open door in heaven. That just makes you think, I want, did they respond? Did they answer? Did they, is, that what, is that what we're supposed to glean from that juxtaposition? That, the, that Jesus was knocking on the door and he said, if you just let me in, I'm going to come in and eat with you and you're going to sit with me on my throne. The very next verse we read, and then I looked and I saw the door was open and there was a throne. And in a sense, that's one of the most encouraging things to say to the church that is lukewarm and is about to be vomited out, is you respond and you get to participate in this. Peterson um, 
uh, Eugene Peterson in his book, again, a nice, nice section on this. Worship is a meeting at the center. So that, which is why I structured the page like this, by the way. Worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. If you hadn't noticed before that eccentric means off-center, um, that's, you know, that, that's, it's just worth seeing, isn't it? You, can, you do lead, and if your life isn't centered on Christ, you live eccentric, you're off-center. Your whole life is out of, out of shape. You, we worship so that we live in response to and from this center, this living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. If there is no center, there is no circumference. People who don't worship are swept into a vast restlessness epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. That is a great paragraph. And actually, I think it's saying in slightly more depth what Augustine says much more pithily. And by the way, at least one person in this room has it tattooed on their arm, which is probably my favorite quote that's not in the Bible. You made us for ourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Oh, what a, I mean, it's just a glorious line, isn't it? Just, yeah, that, if our lives are not centered in on you, we will be restless, epidemic souls looking for it somewhere else. We will live eccentric, out-of-shape lives. And Re- Revelation presents the throne as at the center and then effectively emanating out from it are these various layers of worshiping creatures and creation as a whole. So Revelation, like the Christian life, is centered on the throne. There we go, okay. The heavenly th- Another way of coming at the heavenly throne room. Have a look at the throne room as new creation and new temple. Okay? So you go through, Gen- you look at Genesis 1 and comparisons with Revelation 4. Um, of course, you have in the beginning God and light. And you have uh, in the beginning in Revelation 4, you have God seated on his throne in heaven. God created the heavens and the earth. Day 2, the sky above and the water below, which when they meet form rainbows, which you then see immediately around the throne. Day 3, dry land and the appearance of plants representing the first living things. And the living creatures, of course, are the next thing you see. The heavenly lights, or there's perhaps even the seven planets on day four. The lightning, the thunder, and the sevenfold lights in verse five of chapter Revelation 4. You have the sea creatures, and then you have a sea, which is admittedly a sea of glass, which indicates that it's as still and peaceful as... You know, that language of sea is fascinating in Revelation. I'm sure many of us know that sea represents, for the Jews, sea represents land of chaos and monsters and eerie dragons and invasion and all kinds of things. But there's something very beautiful about the fact that the sea around the throne is a sea like it's of, of glass, of crystal. And I live, you know, 200 meters from the sea and when you walk to stand on the beach some days, it is like, you look at it and you think, it looks like someone's ironed it. It's just pristine, it's just at, totally at peace. And so the abolition of the sea in Revelation 21 does not mean that the new creation does not have any water in it, or even it doesn't have any large bodies of water that would be suitable for surfing and all the other kinds of things that some of us are looking forward to doing there. But it simply means that the monster chaos, uncontrollable clonic powers that are set up against God have been silenced forever, and there is a sea that's like glass, like crystal. And so the sea creatures in the sea of glass. Uh, day six, of course, you get the land animals, including human beings. We have four living creatures, one of whom looks like a man. And then, of course, there is rest and worship. And that's what they sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Rob. <laughs> Sorry. The Lord God Almighty. Full stop. New paragraph. Rob, question mark. Yes. Behold the right-hand side of the chart. 
Yeah, there you go. So yes, well done. You're ahead. Um, yes, the, does the sea represent the temple and the sea, the, the crystal sea or the, uh, the, the uh, bronze seas in the temple? I think definitely yes. But I, these are two different ways of unpacking, if you will, the, the vision. One of them is to see this as a new creation moment. The other one is to see it as a new temple. Solomon's temple, you have gates and massive ancient doors. The gates are enormous when you ever look at a schematic or some of the study Bibles. The ESV has got a particularly good study Bible set of graphics on this that just show you the temple. And, it's, and I th- there's a YouTube thing, I think, where you can go on and actually see a, a sort of video walk through or sort of fly through the temple as it would have felt. It's obviously been done as a model, but it's, it's very cool. I say cool in the loosest possible sense of that word. Um, cool. Cool if you're the kind of person who likes coming to theological conferences on your days off. So as cool as you. Um, but there are giant <laughs> gates and ancient doors. Um, and, and of course, and heaven's throne room begins with an open door. There is a mercy seat, and here there is a seat, but it's no longer just a seat of, of mercy, but a seat of radiant glory, which of course is above the ark in the, in the temple. Uh, there are precious stones in Solomon's temple, represented by the jasper, the carnelian, and the emerald. There are angelic guardians in the temple, the cherubim on either side of the ark of the covenant, represented by, I think, the elders, but certainly the living creatures. I think the elders are angelic as well, which is our sort of little asterisk down here. They are in heaven before the Lamb arrives, to me, is the most compelling reason, that actually in the drama of Revelation, that the people who are singing praise to God before the Lamb has, in my view, ascended and taken his seat in heaven, which I think is what's happening in chapter 5, there are already the, the elders already there worshipping God. So I think that they're more likely to be angelic beings than representatives of the church, although they clearly, in a sense, are both. They are angels who represent the Old and New Testament people of God. That's why there's 24 of them, 12 and 12. So I think that's who they are. Doesn't, not a huge amount hangs on it, I suspect. There is an ark in Solomon's temple, and there's an ark here, which we finally meet in chapter 11, verse 19. There are 10 lamps in Solomon's temple. There are seven fiery torches in the throne room. Obviously, a lamp, you know, I mean, this is an obvious point, but until 150 years ago, lamps were fire, right? Rather than these things. Um, There is a bronze sea in Solomon's temple, as we've just heard, and there's a crystal sea in the heaven's throne room. There's an altar of incense in both. There are music, songs, and instruments in the temple through to the throne room of of God, which has songs and harps. There are four groups of three oxen, and there are four living creatures, lion, oxen, man, and eagle. There's a table of bread, and then there isn't one in the heavenly throne room. But when you get to chapter 14 and you see the harvest of the earth, the grain of God's people being harvested, you think, oh, there is going to be bread. But it's going to be bread that's going to be made from the harvest, the eschatological harvest of the people of God. The fields are white for harvest. God is harvesting good wheat from his world. The kingdom of heaven on that day will be like wheat and weeds that eventually the master comes and separates and says, you go over there and this will get out there. And that sense that in sense the table of bread is missing and we should make us go, What's, why is that not there? Why are the other major features of the temple not present? And the answer is, they will be. You and I, in that sense, are the wheat that God... We'll come to the harvest later, but it's, I think it just set that one up for us. And similarly, there are veils and curtains and walls in the old temple. But the veil in the heavenly temple has, of course, been torn in two from top to bottom. There is no veil separating the different layers. There are, of course, concentric circles. There is still space in a meaningful sense in the temple. There is still the living creatures are here, and then I saw that, and then I saw that, and outside that was the creatures and the world, heaven, on the earth, under the earth, loads of layers. But there's no veil. There's no walls. There's no separating distinctions between all the people. 
Um, and I just think that's a yeah, beautiful, symbolic, yeah. Uh, good. So are we, what do we mean when we say new temple? Are we talking about it as a, as a literal physical place, a room, a part of the whole of the new creation and so on? I mean, I think in the end, this is, the whole cosmos becomes a temple by the end of Revelation. But I think this, chronologically, this is not referring to the same reality as Revelation 21 and 22. So I think this is the, again, this is where you have to buy a broadly preacherist, idealist reading of the whole book for it to make sense. Of course, as we saw yesterday, a futurist might say, no, this hasn't even happened yet. Whereas I think this happened with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And actually what happens in chapter 5 is heaven's view of the ascension. We see Jesus leaving and Revelation sees Jesus coming, I think. But if you don't buy that, then of course you're going to read it differently. But So I think this is the reality now in heaven. But of course what happens in Revelation 21 is that that comes down to the earth and fills everything. That's, I think, the story of Revelation in a way. Okay, yeah, good question. Okay, this is a, this is a quirky piece, okay? This I'm going to, again, I'm going to light heart for a second. I just, I like it. Just give it some thought. Um, my mum and dad are here, by the way. Um, just not that they are in heaven's throne room any more than I am particularly. They may be slightly closer to it. <laughs> we, will, we will see. Um, but, uh, but they go to a, they, if you meet people called Wilson who look like they're 30 years older than me and vaguely resemble me, they will deny that they know me. And they've already done it. Somebody, Howard, had that experience this morning. And so he said, are you related to the Andrew Wilson, I think is what he said. And they said, distant relatives. <laughs> so there's a certain sense of shame with being associated with me in this building. But it, it's actually it's from the church that they, they, that they attend in Sussex that I kind of got the idea of doing the page this way. It's based on the, the thing at the... My arrow's gone weird. The arrows have gone really weird. I don't know. Sorry. Okay. The arrows on my piece of paper look different. I hope they do on yours. But it's from their... Basically, this church at the bottom... Uh, the church that I then went to for six years as a child and that they go to now is shaped very much in a sort of traditional Christian fashion like many Anglican churches are. I'd be surprised, if you, unless you know South London pretty well, I'd be surprised if anybody in this room even knows what direction we're facing right now. You might. Um, you might have happened to have looked it up. But the building is not... This is, it used to be a school, and it was not designed with any sense of north, south, east, and west and with any sense of geographical orientation. But in an awful lot of churches, of course, and particularly more traditional churches, the layout, the topography of the church was intended to tell some sort of narrative story. Um, and that's why an awful lot of churches to this day are you know, d- designed with east and west as running the central pole, so that the nave runs east to west, and that is obviously meant to be structured that way. Well, I think there is potentially even some topographic significance to the way in which the living creatures and the temple and the tabernacle in Israel are structured relating to the way that the churches today are structured. So in the living creatures, you have your lion, human, eagle, and bull in the four corners. And I think there, you could make some associations between the eagle and the lampstand. You certainly make some associations between the bull and the altar. You make some association between where the lion face is and where the lion, the God, the lion of God actually sits on the west. And then, of course, human being represented by the bread and the 12 tribes to the north and that that in effect the temple and the living creatures biblically may map one onto the other to some degree but the point that you often don't see when it comes to architecture at least if you come to a charismatic church like this which most of us do is that of course the layout of the building has been in christianity has been flipped relative to the layout of the building in judaism so in judaism you arrive at the altar in the east and you head west 
So you right, effectively, you, you enter the temple in the same way that you might enter the land. You come into it from the east, which is why they cross the Jordan east to west and walk into the land through the water, which is the same reason that you walk through the, between the bronze seas, heading westwards from the east into the temple. And then, of course, the ark is at the western end. So you're deliberately moving east to west. But what's happened in traditional church architecture is that they flipped it round beautifully as if to say, you are already in the holy place, which is why you start at the other end of the and you head east because you are heading from a place of being in the dwelling place of God towards the altar or the table rather than being the person who has to come and bring your sacrifice before you're allowed to approach God. I love that. I just think that's really cool and I just throw it out there to think about. And I think even in, of course, in the church that I'm referring to, there is a, a pulpit on one side and a lectern on one side. And in our, am I, is it an eagle, Dad? I didn't actually check this. The lectern looks like an eagle to me, but is, it, is that the bird that it's designed? You know the gold lectern at St. Mary's? That is an eagle, isn't it? Yes. My mum is nodding authoritatively. My dad is looking like, I'm not 100% sure. But I think, in other words, there is something about the, the bread from heaven being delivered as, in the form of the word of God and the lectern of the, the, the eagle effectively representing the spirit who is able to speak to you as you walk into the church. And I just thought that was nice. I like that there is sort of the living creatures and the heavenly temple and the structure of the Anglican church in the village I grew up are all telling something of the same story about Christian worship. But the fact that we come from the holy place to the table rather than coming from the altar to the holy place is wonderful. Um, sadly, in this building, we could be heading in any direction. We could be heading from northeast to southwest and it might make a total mockery of the whole thing. But in some churches, you can walk in and go, I'm glad that they oriented this building when they built it. I think it can, can tell us a beautiful story about Christian worship. The scroll and the lamb. So we're now going to go into chapter five. So let's read chapter five. And then we'll have a, a moment to discuss. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more because behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And all the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, you would, wouldn't you? And we will. Wow. 
It's such a powerful scene. Many of us will, this is probably one of the chapters in Revelation that's most familiar to us and to our people in our church, I expect. It's probably the, song, the, the passage of Revelation that's most reflected in our liturgy or in our singing, I expect, as well. Um, but a few comments started. For some reason, I always start with clouds up here and move around like that. I never quite worked out why I do that, but I, I do. The Lamb arrives in heaven during this scene, having already been slain. So this is why I don't think that it's right. This is one reason to reject futurism. For me, is that the slaying of the Lamb is not something that happens in the middle of the story, and it's not something that John discovers at the end of history. It's something that the church has been celebrating for a very long time by now, and that's because we know. So John is effectively living through the drama of discovery, but that's a drama of discovery that effectively is being sealed in the context of the resurrection and the ascension rather than something that we won't find out until the end of history. So the Lamb arrives. So I think this is, in a way, this is seeing the ascension from heaven's point of view. And I think that's often what happens in Revelation is we see a heavenly perspective on something that until now we can only see the earth version of. The scroll, what's written on the scroll on the front and on the back, I'm not sure if you can quite make it as crisp as this, as if the front is blessing and the back is judgment, but the two-sided scroll we, is actually a theme in several places. Right? It's on the front and on the back. It speaks words of judgment and words of blessing. And it's also a scroll that we know later tastes like honey but makes your stomach bitter. It's two-sided, right? There are two elements to the scroll. It is declaring great things that, make, that are like honey to our taste and it's declaring scary things that make our stomachs turn bitter because they are going to bring judgment to the earth. And Carson's comment, I like, it just says, the scroll represents all God's purposes of judgment and blessing, in that sense, like Deuteronomy does. So this is effectively the, 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 like the equivalent of that which would be read by Israel, and they go up Mount Gerizim and Mount Abel and shout amen to the blessings and the curses, because it's effectively saying God is going to judge the earth, and he's going to make all things right. And of course, that being true, if the scroll can't be opened... You cry, you howl, because not only are the judgments of God not going to come upon those who are oppressing you, but the blessings of God for you in Christ are not going to be yours either. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, as we know, takes us back to Genesis, back to Genesis 49, and Jacob's promises over his sons as he goes, Reuben, yeah, you're not, it's not going to be you, sorry, um, because of what you did. Le- Simeon and Levi, yeah, you're unstable. You guys kill people when you probably shouldn't have. Judah, it's going to be you. And Judah is a lion's cub. And he's going you know, to be, be beautiful, he's going to be handsome, but he is going to crouch like a lion and no one will dare rouse him. And the scepter is not going to depart from his family until the nations come and bring tribute and obedience to the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And of course now, for the first time, it is explicitly declared that's who Jesus is. I think we'd have probably, if you read your Bible without this passage, you'd have guessed it by now. Um, but this is the time when finally, again, the first book of the Bible raises this theme, Judah's Lion, who is it? And it's not until the last book of the Bible that you are explicitly told. The Root of David, um, echoes Isaiah 11. It, it, that's, um, I'm always at risk of saying things on the fly that I'm not sure are true. I think that might be the only place where the Root of David language is used. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. But I think the, the idea of the shoot of David, in other words, so you've got a plant like this, Shoots coming off, that's Jesus. You go, yeah, of course, David is the plant. From his line, Jesus comes. But in Isaiah 11, Jesus is described both, well, the Messiah is described as both the shoot and the root, as if he is both the outgrowth of David's line and the one who is the root of David's line. So Jesus provides the basis for David just as David provides the basis for Jesus. And it's that that is drawn attention to here in Revelation 5, that he is the foundation of the Davidic kingdom, not just the outgrowth of him. Or it. 
He's presented as a, we hear it, we get a, a lion-like king who we are introduced to with a book in his hand. That's a good biblical theme just to think about for a moment. What other kings do we meet in the Bible who get revealed as kings who are holding books? Like Joash's testimony or Joshua or Josiah's book that he discovers and then says we've got to reform the temple. The book of Joash, the book of Joshua, the book of Josiah, the book of Jesus as he's holding the book in his hand. Prepared, as it represents a, a willingness and a desire to do everything that has been written and fulfill all righteousness. All of that imagery leads us to expect a king who is going to come into the, the land and the temple, conquer Jericho, throw down idols and cleanse the land like Joash, Joshua and Josiah. And we're expecting that even if we didn't then hear that he was going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. We've got all of that expectation. Lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David, king with a book. Here he comes. And then you look round and I saw something this size that you would eat for Sunday lunch. Just sitting there. And when the lamb is finally revealed, it's like the shock of that revelation cascade outwards. Like a, sort of like a, you know, in a good way, but like a nuclear explosion. It's epicenter. And it all goes out. The songs flow out. First the four, and then the 24, and then the millions. And then every single creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea all cry out together. Worthy is the lamb. And so because the lamb is worthy, he is worshipped alongside the one on the throne. And that, as I said, is one of the most explicit moves of Christocentric worship that the Bible ever makes, to put Jesus alongside God the Father on the throne of the world. Hallelujah. Let's, um, let me just, again, let's have a sort of, if I can call it this, a doxological reflection, if that's not too pretentious, okay? Like, what, what about that? What about those two chapters? So many of us have probably preached these passages more than once, but anything in, in there, whether it's something you'd heard before or not, you just say that is an element of the character of God or the character of Christ that I want us, I would love people to see. I'd love to help in whatever way I do that. I'd love to help lead people to encounter Jesus in that way because that's a really beautiful element of the character of God. Or anything you, that's another way of saying anything you found worship inducing in the last 20 minutes, talk about it. Okay? Is that all right? Spend a couple of minutes processing that. Okay. Any. Um, any feedback on that, which is either, we were talking about this, and I, that's, that's really helped, um, which, or something you've just learned or saw, or anything which is a, a question which emerged from it. Either is fine. So, but any, just, any comeback from that discussion? Dan. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. So the question is, it's kind of a comment and a question at the same time. It, that every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth is participating in heavenly worship. Is John somehow saying, this is going on and the, the people of God or the world, the humanity needs to catch up and needs to recognize that. Is it like, you, you mentioned Romans 8, I'm thinking if these people stay silent, the stones will cry out. But it's that kind of, that sort of summons, like or the whole of creation is worshiping, why aren't you sort of, you know, even or perhaps in a slightly more positive way in the language of it's presumably Hillsong, isn't it? If creation is made to worship, so will I. It's like, that, hang on a second, the whole world is singing. Where, where's, where's the voice of the human race to whom this message is going out? That's a lovely way of thinking about it, yeah. Yeah, Steve. Yeah. 
Yes, basically, should we ignore the chapter divisions for the connections? I think, I think yes, although I think that probably the marker in the text, as I said before, is the, I was in the spirit and I saw, there's, a new, there's clearly a new vision. I think when the last letter finishes, it's not just actually the, the vision changes, it's even the, the genre changes to some degree, because it's no longer a letter, it's now a vision of heaven. So I think there is an obvious, I think that chapter division is located well. If you're going to break the Bible up, you might as well put one of the chapter divisions there. But I think the whole point is that even when that happens, there's a continuity to John's prophetic drama, which I think is really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, so is the declaration that the lamb has conquered, or that the lion has conquered, uh, reflective of the dynamic we were talking about yesterday in which Jesus, Jesus has won and the church are now going to win through him and by him rather than simply being a statement of the victory of Jesus? I think in, in a way, yes, although I wouldn't, wanna, I wouldn't want to be unfair in my representation of non-preterist views here because clearly nobody thinks that Jesus has only just conquered at the end of history. I think, in a sense, the rea- I think what they're saying is that John is, in the drama, is discovering that fact or is recognising it again in glory at the end of history. Which I don't think quite works, but I think that's the, way it's, that's the way they're wanting it to be heard. Rather than to say, oh no, some futurists are think that Jesus doesn't actually conquer until the very end of history. So I don't want to overplay the contrast between what I said and their view. But I do think that the, the victory of Jesus as the foundation for everything that the church will subsequently do in the book is critical. And I also think, by the way, when I, in that bubble that it says, we would expect a king who will conquer Jericho, throw down idols and cleanse the land, it's ambiguous the way I've worded it there. I'm, it could sound like I mean, and instead we get a lamb, whereas I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying, and we do, but it's not one that we look, look like what we would expect at all. It's going to look like a lamb. And as we're going to see in a, couple, in a few, probably in the next session, we, the throwing down of Jericho is exactly what happens. That's why everybody's blowing seven trumpets. You know, it, it, that's exactly what's taking place. The cleansing of Ireland, that's exactly what's going on. So we're not intended to say, and instead of Josiah we get, or instead of Joshua, we get the lamb. You say, no, you get the lamb who is the true and better Josiah, Joash and Joshua all rolled into one, but he's also one, someone who dies for the sin of the world. Who could possibly have seen that coming? So I don't want to overdraw the distinction as if it's not this, but that. It's actually this, but like that. It's more like what it is. Uh, Chris. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that's one of the many layers, I think. I mean, I don't think that's the only thing that's happening there. And obviously, you then have to get with the seven. So I think the idea of a sealed scroll needing to be opened by the death of somebody is a very easy link. I think I don't actually know what Barclay does with the sevenness of the seals, because unless you get into sort of cat-like territory, you don't want to have somebody dying seven times or whatever. But I think, again, the fullness or completion of the death of Christ and its ability to remove every obstacle to God's judgment and blessing coming. Absolutely. And obviously that's a point that Hebrews makes in Hebrews 9, isn't it? Very sort of strong, using the fact that the word for will and covenant are the same in Greek, hammers that point a lot, saying that a will can't take effect until somebody dies. And it's only because Jesus has died that actually the benefits of what he's secured for you are, possible, are yours. So I think that's a, that's a great thing to draw out of it. Yeah, it's a, but I don't think that particularly helps us with the sevenness of it. But I know we haven't really looked at that yet. Oh, I, that may well be true. I hadn't heard that. Um, I'm, I'm always, because ah. this is the thing, it's really dangerous to do this live because you go, I, this is going to go online and I'm going to feel like a, 
total fool. It sounds like a preacher's point that isn't true to me, but I don't because it sounds like because it sounds very sticky and very easy to make to preach. But I don't know. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll have to look into it. Um, yeah, but I, my initial. I'm initially skeptical. Um, seven would sound like a, an awful lot. I think we'd think two or three witnesses would. So. I've not heard that. But it might, if it is true, I'm going to look like a fool, and that's probably not a bad thing um, for my humility and other things. Yes? That's a great question. Is humanity missing from this picture? Um, kind of. Um, I think they are represented by the 24 elders. And I think that simply, I'm just reading there, the number 24 is 12 plus 12, and old and new. And I think the 24, when it appears in Revelation, means old and new tribes, apostles. But yeah, are there any people there other than Jesus? Explicitly, no. Apart from potentially within the language of every creature. And I think what you, when you actually, when you do get introduced to the cry of people, the cry of the people is chapter six, how long, O Lord? It's the martyrs. And so, yes, in a sense, that's why I think what you're asking is connected to what Dan asked a few minutes ago, which is to what extent is this effectively inviting humanity to join in the heavenly throne room song? Um, it's difficult to... It's, there's arguments from silence. That you can get good and bad ones, can't you? I, I don't want to overplay it. And it turns, if it turned out I was wrong, I don't think it would jeopardise the reading of the text that way. But I, I, yeah, I'm inclined to see some significance there. Yeah. Okay, let me, um, let me jump on. I'm, I'm, you know, there may well be other stuff too, but um, it's just good to have times of feedback and processing time, really, so we're not just um, hearing all the time. Um, I'm going to read, I think what I want to do is actually to read Revelation 6, 1 through to 8, 5, all in one go, so that we can get the thread of the whole bit, because I think at 8, 5, there's a break. Okay. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they'd borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali, 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Issachar, 12,000 from Zebulun, 12,000 from Joseph, 12,000 from Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake. Sometimes you just want to read the Bible and just, I don't know, not comment. I just think it's, it's incredible. It's just the drama is so rich and deep. Just go, if we go back to the start of Revelation chapter 6 though and just consider the four horses and if you want to, I'm not sure I've actually done this yet, but to go to say, let's jump into another biblical book. But just jump briefly on your tables into Zechariah chapter 1 and ask the question, what are the four horses supposed to be doing in Zechariah chapter 1? So the four, like most symbols in Revelation, John doesn't make the symbols up. He draws the symbols from somewhere in the Scriptures. And there are probably a handful of things he does introduce, but mostly there's no novelty here. It's John borrowing, drawing, appropriating. So go back to Zechariah 1 on your tables and have a look. What are the horses supposed to be doing? What are they actually doing? Why is Zechariah upset about it? And what will happen when they do what they're supposed to do? Okay? Just give it five minutes, okay? And if you're thoroughly in a fog at the end of five minutes, we'll come back together anyway. But just have a, have a look. I don't know how well most of us know Zechariah 1, but my guess is it's not one of those 
sort of, it's not probably not a passage that's on the back of our toilet door, if I put it that way. So maybe just go back and have a look and refresh your memory. What's going on with the, the horses in Zechariah 1? Okay. Let's, um, what are the four horses sent out? What are they supposed to be doing? Patrolling the earth? And what's the problem? What are they, why is there a problem in this text? Why is, why, why is Zechariah not happy about it? Because everybody's at peace, everybody's at rest. Yeah? So there's no judgment. So Israel's still under the cosh because the nations are not being judged because they've been sent out to patrol the earth and they come and go, yeah, everything's fine. And Zechariah's going, what are you doing? That's not what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to bring judgment on the nations while they're oppressing our people. And what will happen when they fulfill their purpose? Towards the end of the... Yeah, we'll be restored. Yeah? We'll, be, we'll be safe. We'll, be, we'll dwell in prosperity and peace. In other words, the four horsemen in Zechariah 1 are sent out to go and bring judgment to those nations who are oppressing Israel that Israel might live at peace. Now jump forward to Zechariah chapter 6, and we're not going to do the same sort of discussion in groups, but you'll see the same thing happening with a twist. You've got the four horsemen reappear, right? Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes to the north country, the whites go after them, and the dappled ones go to the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. They're being commissioned out again this time to go and bring the judgment patrol over the nations. And that's good because it's leading to God saying, now my spirit is at rest because these horsemen have gone out and they're actually bringing judgment over the north country who's been afflicting you. So what's changed? Well, the horsemen have been sent out into the earth again, recommissioned by the Lord of hosts. He's the one who sent them. And all of that is then very important when it comes to read the four horses in Revelation 6, because otherwise you read the four horsemen as villains who have somehow, I think a lot of people in our churches probably just assume the four horsemen of the apocalypse are evil powers ranged against God. But the symbolism of Zechariah is really clear. These are the patrolmen of God. And I think you'd have to make a strong argument for why uh, John had appropriated the symbol and completely inverted the meaning. I don't think he has at all. The horsemen in Revelation 6 are doing the same thing. They are going out to bring the judgment of God on the people of the world who are afflicting the people of God. And the reason why the martyrs are lamenting in Revelation 6 is because they're saying, come on, God, get on with it. We've been waiting for you to do this. How long are we going to have to wait until you avenge us? So they've been sent by God. They're angel, agents in that sense of judgment, but angels of good, agents of good, not of evil. And we could also ask the question, why is the rider on the white horse wearing a crown already? Is there any other crowned rider on a white horse we meet in Revelation? And what does that mean? And so finally, you've got to ask the sticky questions. Is who do you think these riders are? When do you think it happens? Why? So obviously, again, in, this, is one of, this is now we get into the start, the territory of the lurid gosh, the whole world's going to fall apart and there are going to be angels, the devil's going to come with his henchmen and try and kill us all, but the church will get raptured out. I don't think that's happening here at all. I think this is describing God bringing his purposes of judgment to the world through his appointed angelic emissaries. But in the case of the, the rider on the white horse, I think the, 
I would say the burden of proof is on the person who says that's not Jesus in the sense that he's wearing a crown and he's riding a white horse and we know both who's crowned and who's wearing a white horse. If it's an angel, it's not going to kill me, but I, I just... Actually, <laughs> that's ambiguous. If it's, it wouldn't end up being a bad thing for my interpretation, particularly if it wasn't Jesus, but I think that's probably the easiest, within the symbolism of Revelation, easiest way of describing. He's the one who comes out conquering and to conquer. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse are angelic agents of judgment on the world, and they are a good thing for the world. And that's the martyrs seeing this happening start to get excited. They're going, how long is it going to be, God? You're sure we're nearly there. The clock is ticking. You've sent these guys out patrolling the earth. This sounds exciting. We might be about to be vindicated. Now, on the bottom right, you have a, a lightheartism which I want you to, which you should consider, and I'm not sure what I think about it. But I just think it's quite interesting because what he does is to map the horses onto periods of revelation and say that the white horse representing victory is related to the, the very early period of the early church, the victory of Jesus and the initial growth of the church in Jerusalem, and is represented by the period of the seven seals. The red horse represents the conflict and division that begins to set in as the church is divided in and on itself, particularly the division within Judaism between those who worship Jesus and those who don't, and represents the period of the trumpets, which are there to divide the people, the, you know, the people of God from the rest. The black horse for Lightheart represents a period of famine and protection and corresponds to the period of the visions in chapters 12 to 15. And the pale horse represents the coming of death and Hades, the worst, bleakest judgment, which comes through the bowls. So Lightheart suggests. Now, I, I'm, I'm not persuaded. That I'm, it might be right. I'm not particularly going, yeah, that's really helpful and illuminating. I think he makes quite a lot of it in his commentary. Um, I think it's kind of one of those interesting, but I'm... I can live without it, but I'm just worth throwing it out there as an interesting mapping of this onto subsequent chapters. But then from there, and we'll do this before lunch, uh, this will be the last page we do before lunch, we, we, from there we move on to the, the final three seals. So the four horsemen you know, read fairly straight. But the fifth seal presents, in a sense, the book of Revelation in one question, which is, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge. And so Jesus has already won, as we've said, as the book of Revelation begins. His victory is not in question. The question, rather, is the question of the martyrs. And as we are, we are now seeing, if you like, worship from all of creation coming to the Lamb and the horsemen of the apocalypse going out, we're thinking, great, it's nearly there. We're all going to be vindicated. And the martyrs are going, yeah, oh, hang on, what's going on? Why Are we nearly there or are you going to make us wait? And, of course, the answer that we receive is that, yeah, you're going to need to wait. They were given a white robe. First, sorry, chapter 6, verse 11. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and, or slaves and their brothers and sisters should be complete who were to be killed as they had been. The martyrs going, it's great, we're nearly there. And then they said, no, you've got to wait because there's going to be a lot more martyrs before you guys receive the kingdom that you're waiting for. And that, that is, that's casting something of a shadow which, of course, we are already used to because we've read about Antipas, the faithful witness, and we've read about Satan's throne, and we've read these letters about people being martyred. But this is to say, not only have you seen martyrdom, but you will see more. And it's only when the full number of martyrs has been gathered in that I will finally bring all of the things you have been hoping for to pass. So that, 
those verses, I think, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 6 are very important in the, the plot of Revelation. And much of chapters 12, 13, 14, 15 is about that, isn't it? It's like, how long are you going to wait? Well, there's going to be more people will die first. And not really until you get to chapters 18, 19, 20 do you see the answer in the end that the martyrs have been waiting for. And so that's, that's seal number five. And then you have seal six and seven. The sixth seal, of course, is the collapse and complete implosion of the cosmos in many ways, which is a, another reason why reading the seals, trumpets and bowls in sequence, doesn't, as we said yesterday, doesn't really work. But the world collapses in two sevens. Of course it does. Let's throw in another couple of sevens. And by the way, did you notice there were some sevens in chapter five as the world is praising? Did anybody notice the sevens of praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength? Some people are going, I noticed that seven. You guys are going to be seeing it everywhere. You're going to be walking up Lee High Road going, oh, sevens everywhere. Um, it's going to be take over your mental world. But there are two sevens here. Two, the world collapses in the things and in people. Right? The earth, sun, moon, stars, sky, mountains and islands. And then the people, the kings, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, slave and free. And then, of course, another key question of Revelation, who can stand? The wrath of the Lamb is here. Who can stand? Each seal, in a way, corresponds to a question. Seal five, how long? Question seal six, who can stand? Seal seven, do you know who these people are? It's really interesting, the way that questions seem to correspond to them. And so the answer that's given, who can stand, is, well, angels can stand. Because 617 the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? After this I saw four angels holding back the winds of the earth and then I heard about the sealed, redeemed people. So there are people who can stand when the wrath of the Lamb comes. The angels are doing fine. And the 144,000 redeemed are going to be fine. And so there are four angels at the corners of the world holding back the wind until the 144,000 are sealed. John hears them listed by their tribes and so everybody, as we said, everyone's expecting presumably a Jewish community and expecting a massive multitude of Jews to be redeemed and sealed. And of course, there's lots and lots of Jews in this multitude. But when John finally looks, as we saw, he sees a new multitude from every tribe and nation who have come out of the tribulation and worship God and the Lamb and their shepherd. The shock of that is the same as the shock we would have seen in chapter five when you're expecting a lion and you see a lamb. Whoa, look at the... I didn't even know there were people on earth who looked like that is what John would have felt. I doubt John would ever have seen somebody that looks like a Japanese or Chinese person would. I doubt he would ever have seen somebody who looks like a sand person would look. I doubt he would, you know what I mean? He, he just like, what? I, my world is a bit sheltered. I haven't seen that. I have, what on earth? Who are they? What's that language? To be honest, with our very global world, that is hard to recreate for us, isn't it? But the shock of the diversity of the people of God to which to some degree, I mean, most of us have probably spent at least some time in a church or in a conference worshipping in a thoroughly multi-ethnic, multilingual setting. Praise God. But that's something that's very new as a result of globalisation, isn't it? That most people would only ever have worshipped with people who looked and sounded and thought roughly like them. And so for John to see that, the shock of the diversity of the kingdom of God must have been astounding for him. And they're all worshipping the same God and they're all saying the Lamb is our shepherd. You think, you guys, seriously, where, are they? where the heck's America? I, never even, I didn't even know there was an America until 500 years ago. How on earth have they found their way into the people? What? Chile? I didn't even know that was on the map. Like, that's just land of Leviathan and the dragons and Australia. You know, that's the shock, isn't it, that's taking place here. I put an asterisk on here, but I think the period of the tribulation in Revelation can be understood in several ways. 
you may not even want to choose, right? You could, the, the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation, you could say the Tribulation is basically the events of the 60s. And by the which I mean, not the 1960s, I mean the 60s. You know? I mean, some people who say it's the events of the 60, 1960s as well, but the events of the AD 60s, um, as Rome attacks the church until the temple is destroyed. And there was a very intense period of persecution under Nero, the period 64 to 68, and then building up to the Jewish war and the destruction of the temple and the final siege of Masada in AD 73. You would probably say that was a pretty rocky period for Israel and the church, the AD 64 to 73-ish. So you could say that's the period we're focusing in on. Or you could say the, tribula- the Great Tribulation is the church age as a whole, from Pentecost to the return of Christ. Or you could say it's actually the entire history of the people of God from Abel through until the very last martyr. You may not want to choose. You may actually say, as I kind of want to have my cake and eat it there, my preacherist hat, I want to say, in this particular period, that's how most people would have seen it, referring to their date and rightly so but actually in a sense church history as a whole and human history as a whole is a tribulation for the people of God from the first day that Cain killed Abel until the last martyr dies and so that's seal six and then of course in seal seven sorry cool Yeah. Yes, in sequence rather than recapitulating. Yes. Um, it depends what what interpretative model you use. I think if you're a futurist, the answer is I, I honestly don't know. But I think most futurists therefore do something like one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. But six is sort of blending into one another. One, two, three, four, five, six, and then seven, seven, seven. Although even that doesn't quite get us out of it because this, of course, is a sixth seal, and so you have have to push that into the future because there's no world left. So I, to be honest, you'd have to ask a futurist. I've never gone enough into that school. I think if you are, but you read it like me, and you see there is a, na- there is a plot unfolding here, and it's not just a sequence of recapitulation. You're going to see this as the collapse of the, of the collapse of the known world. And you're going to read this in the same way that you read the symbolism of Matthew 24, about the, you know, the, or as I read the symbolism of Matthew 24, the stars and the moon and the moon turned to blood. To be honest, it's what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. said, this has happened today. The stars have turned, you know, the moon's turned to blood. That's what's just happened because, the, because people are speaking in languages and receiving the Spirit. So I think you're going to see cosmic collapse as very weighty symbols to describe the drama of what's taken place in the vindication of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's how I read it, which will sound to a lot of people like you're trying to avoid the plain meaning of the symbols. But that's where I go back to Pentecost and I say, Peter thought the moon had turned to blood on the day of Pentecost. He, he, that's how he uses that kind of cosmic collapse symbolism in his preaching. And so we should. That's all. Psalm 18 is another great one. You know, the Lord thundered from heaven and lightning flashed and the rivers of the deep were born. It's like, well, they, he won a battle. And you might say, he's just getting a bit overexcited, bless him. But, you know, that's how Jewish apocalyptic writing works. Dan. Can we leave the seventh trumpet for now and return, but hold that thought? Okay? And if I squirrel away from it, then I will, who will be able to, I will say to the rocks, cover me, or who can hide from the wrath of Dan or whatever it is. I just want to get, I want to finish on time and I just want to get, just do seal seven and then we'll pick up questions at the start of the next one if we need to. The seal seven, of course, the seventh seal is not 
the, the, the great multitude no one could count. I think probably some of us assume it is because it's, I sound stupid, but because it's in Revelation 7. I think we sort of almost see the big seven at the front and think, oh, that's the seventh seal, but that's not the seventh seal. The seventh seal doesn't actually get opened until the start of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. So it, as silly as it sounds, the great multitude thing is part of the third feature of the three scenes in seal 6, not seal 7. I know that you might go, yeah, obviously, but I if it's maybe just me, but there was a big seven in my Bible and for years I just thought, oh, that's what the seventh one is. The seventh seal just leads to silence in heaven for about half an hour. Chapters six to seven are very noisy. Natural disasters, harps, martyrs, shouting, multitudes, songs, but now heaven goes deathly quiet. The prayers of the saints are handled carefully. I love the imagery here. It's almost like a very, you know, like a, someone, a museum curator might handle a very valuable Ming vase. Like, make sure I don't drop it. It's like the prayers of the saints are being taken and offered up and this long liturgical silence is preparing us for when the trumpets begin to be blasted out, which in turn will prepare us for the reading of the word. Half an hour is interesting. In John, John often talk, in John's gospel, he often talks about the hour. The hour has come, now my hour has come. Is, in the sense that this is now half an hour, is there a sense this is coming in the middle of the night? This is coming in the middle of a time, not waiting till the end of it. Is the church like Israel on Passover night rescued halfway through? We shall see. Let's have some lunch and we'll start again at 2.